our present focus returns to the beauty of the church. And we've been blessed with five wonderful sights of her beauty already, as Pastor Kyle kicked things off five weeks ago now, and guest preachers from our sister's churches came to tell us why we ought to love the local church. And for these past five weeks, we've beheld the beauty and glory of the church as the very reflection of the beauty and glory of Christ, and this week and this morning will be no different. Last week, after learning that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, today we'll consider that we, the church, who have been entrusted with the stewardship of the gospel, are also to be engaged in the spreading of that same gospel. We'll behold the beauty of the church in the beauty of her mission. And in this way, we'll behold the beauty of the church as God's rescue plan for the world. So as we do, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. That is John 20, 19 through 23, a passage found under the translator heading, Jesus appears to the disciples. Diablo Espanol, abran sus Biblias a Juan, capítulo 20, versículo 19 a 23. El título de la traducción dice, Aparición a las discípulos. And if you're not familiar with the Bible uh, this morning, know that this is a safe place to learn how to read the Bible. Each and every week as we come together and God gathers us again, we're all learning together. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We have extra Bibles underneath the center chair in the aisles, or you could also go onto your phone's browser, search John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, or jump onto your favorite Bible app of choice. We'll be reading today in English from the English Standard Version, the ESV. And this morning, as we do so, we'll see the church is beautiful because her mission is beautiful. Let's turn our attention to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, and meditate upon that mission. And so without any further ado, let's read God's word together and then seek God's help in a brief prayer before continuing on. So beginning in verse 19, John writes, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of God. Let's seek the help of the Spirit of God. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have gathered us yet again, that you have made us your own through the free gift of grace that comes in Christ Jesus. And that, Lord, you have made us a people um, who are beautiful because you are beautiful. You've given us life in Christ to share in, and you nurture, you sustain, you spur on our life in Christ together each and every week as we hear your word read and proclaimed. And Lord, we come to this word with the expectation that you will speak to us through it. And we ask, Lord, that you would do what your spirit only can do, and to take this word as it's proclaimed and as it's read and apply it to our hearts so that we would be changed, so that we would be transformed, so that those, Lord, who maybe have never yet trusted in you would come to see you as beautiful. They would want to be yours and belonging to you. Lord, we ask that you would work through your word 
for the glory of your name, and for the good of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we enter into our final message on the beauty of the church. And today, the internal beauty of the church that we've just been basking in for the past five weeks, it goes outward now. So having come to the end of this series, we don't just kind of kick up our heels and say, wow, the church is awesome. (laughs) I love this. I'm enjoying it. It's like I'm in a nice living room set up and it's all decked out and I just want to dwell here and be here. This is great. The response to the beauty of the church is not just to sit down, hunker down, huddle up and go, awesome, this is it. I'm totally content with the way things are. I love our little group. I love our little community. Um, This is great. (laughs) Not that any of that's wrong, but far from coming to the end of this series in which we've seen wonderful things about who the church is, we've seen wonderful things about life in Christ and life in the body. We've looked inward and we've seen wonderful things as the church is the bride of Christ the body of Christ, built together by God, the people of God who love one another internally. But far from just looking at that and going, oh, that's awesome, so cool, love to be a part of the church, far from merely sitting back and enjoying this, we see today that we are being sent out to shine forth the beauty of the Lord of the church. And so today, the point for us would be that to be who she truly is, the church as defined and as portrayed in Scripture. The beauty of the church must both be shared within the church and must shine without the church. It must go forward from us. So we don't just kind of, you've never been to one of those fun houses where there's mirrors all around? They're kind of creepy. not necessarily a fun thing. (laughs) But it's not like the church is a room full of mirrors and we're just looking inward, looking at our own reflection and going, wow, it's so wonderful. We are so beautiful. If we stopped there, and we're in this room of mirrors, looking all around and having our own reflection and internal beauty staring back at us, that wouldn't be enough. These mirrors also ought to be pointed outward so that the world around us, the world who's not yet a part of the church, might see the beauty of the church, which is the beauty of Christ shining forth and shining forward. We haven't truly grasped the beauty of who we are as Christ people if this beauty is not overflowing out of us. We haven't truly appreciated and rightly admired Jesus and what he's doing in us if we are not overflowing and outpouring with excitement to tell other people, come and see this. Come and be a part of the people of God. Come and see how wonderful Jesus is. We haven't grasped the beauty if we're not moved to declare that beauty, to shine forth that beauty, to invite others into that beauty, to say, you just have to see this. I've never seen anything like this. This is the most wonderful place because it is ruled by, reigned over, sustained by the most wonderful Lord, Jesus Christ. And so this outgoing reflection of the beauty of Christ, that's our mission as a church. That's the very mission of the church. And this mission is one that no one, no organization, no institution, no entity, but the church, the local church can fulfill. Listen to this from the Sovereign Grace Church's Statement of Faith, section 12, paragraph 2, talking about the local church. The statement says, As an expression of Christ's universal church, the local church is the focal point of God's plan to mature his people and to save sinners. The focal point, that is the center of God's activity. 
the center of his activity to mature disciples, and we've seen this over the past five weeks. God is working amongst the church and in the church to make his people look more and more like his son, and he's doing a work in us. But that's not all. The church is also the focal point of God's saving activity in the world. That is, through the local church, through us, is how God has planned to save the world. The local church being his very instrument of rescue to all those who are not yet a part of and numbered within the church, not yet a part of the body of Christ. Church, God is not working through angels to do this, who are flying around invisibly to us with supernatural powers to bring others in. He's not working through governments or legislatures, supreme courts or the media, or some other sort of top-down method of changing the culture around us and the people within it. He's not working through some professional class of preachers and evangelists who are really good at this kind of thing. He's working through us. He's working through each and every local church and each and every particular context and neighborhood. All throughout the world, God is working through these local expressions of the body of Christ, just, just like ours, to save the world. From the bottom up, God is working in the world as just one more sinner. Here's the gospel repents and believes, and is welcomed into God's family. This happens as God's church extends the welcome of the gospel to the world as we're gathered together in worship, and also as we are scattered out into the world in sharing that same gospel. This mission, this rescue, it happens in and through us. It happens through you. The local church is the center of God's saving activity, and this is a beautiful thing. Even as the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Beautiful feet because they carry a beautiful message, the gospel. The church is beautiful because she welcomes the world into the beauty of Christ. The church is beautiful because she welcomes the world into the beauty of Christ. She welcomes the world into life with Christ, life in Christ, life through Christ, in which we enjoy every blessing and every benefit that he has won for us, earned for us in the gospel, in his life, death, and resurrection. We get to welcome the world into this experience that we have in Christ. And so we see that we are most gripped by the beauty of the church when we welcome the world and we're outgoing toward the world uh, to come into the beauty of the church. And this welcome into that beauty, this is our mission. And God has placed us at the very center as a welcome committee (laughs) to the world to invite them in to the beauty of Christ. And so as the center of God's saving activity in the world, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, it teaches us three things that we've been given as we go about this mission, as we extend this welcome. The first is a beautiful commission. This is in verses 19 through 21. The second is a beautiful co-laborer, verses, or just verse 22. And the third is a beautiful confidence, verse 23. A beautiful commission, co-laborer, and confidence. And so let's jump into the first point to see the beautiful commission that we've been given as a church, as a people. We've been sent 
to declare the most beautiful message of all. And so let's dive into the passage. Let's get in a little bit of the context set in our minds to see what's going on here in John chapter 20. And so what we see here, this scene um, is actually an Easter passage. It's an Easter story. The disciples, they're huddled together on the evening of Resurrection Sunday. Christ has just been raised from the dead. Yet here they are, it says, behind locked doors. And they're huddled together behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. That is for fears of the opponents of Christ who have just carried out the crucifixion of their Lord and their friend and their master. They are huddled together and they are fearful. Mary had already come to them and she announced the resurrection to them and said, I've seen the Lord. He's not in the tomb. He appeared to me. But they're still gripped with fear because they have not yet themselves, the 11 disciples minus Judas, because they haven't beheld Jesus yet. And they're locked in this room and they're afraid. And the world that's outside this room to these disciples, two days after the death of their Lord, three days if you're counting the Jewish calendar, not to trip anybody up there, three days later. (laughs) But the world outside them is a fearful and antagonistic place. The world has just crucified their Lord. And the world might be out to get them as well. The disciples, they want shelter from this hostile world of unbelief and opposition to the truth. And into a room that's locked to the outside, which are full of hearts that are locked up by fear, Jesus enters in and he says, peace be with you. The risen Lord in his risen and glorified body enters in, not being obstructed by the locked door and appears before them. And he says, peace. Peace because your time of sorrow is over. Just as I told you, I will be with you. And then for a little while, I will not be with you, but then I will come again. Peace, because though the world has crucified me, I have overcome the world, as you can see in my resurrection. Peace, because ultimately, most importantly, my work of redemption to bring you true and lasting peace with God is finished. To those who are fearful, Christ comes into this scene, into this moment, and he speaks peace. So Jesus, he appears to these fearful disciples. He gives them his peace, and we see that he proves to them He's truly been raised from the dead by showing them his wounds. They realize he's not just a ghost. He's not an apparition. This really is the Lord. We see the one who was crucified has been raised. And it says that as they see this, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Their fear turns to rejoicing. Christ is risen. He has overcome. He has conquered the grave. This must mean the kingdom is coming. This must mean that our enemies will be defeated. This must mean that we're going to march into Jerusalem and attain the victory. Any of these thoughts might be going through their minds. Christ has won the victory. Here he is with them. But now, far from the kingdom coming in full or from the disciples now being kept from the hostile world that had just crucified Christ, we see here in the text, Jesus has other plans for them. The risen Christ, the Lord of the living and the dead, as he appears to them, he offers the disciples present that day, who are representative of all of Christ's people, he offers them a commission, we see. And just a, you know, helpful uh, tip for us. When someone has been raised from the dead, after predicting their own death and then appears before you, 
you listen to what they have to say. <laughs> if he could predict his own death and rise from the grave, you should take what he says to the bank. <laughs> you should listen up. He appears to them, the risen Lord, Lord of all things, and says, I have a job for you. I have a mission for you. And to these fearful disciples, to the ones who were fearful of the world outside, he tells them that they must go back into the world. The disciples who were fearful of the world, he says, far from taking you out of the world, far from taking a victory lap and calling this whole thing wrapped up, I'm sending you back out into the world. It's like Jesus was miraculously delivered from shark-infested waters. And the disciples, you know, they saw the blood and the guts and the chum, and they went, man, Christ has been <laughs> taken under. Yet miraculously, Christ has been raised. He's been delivered. But now he tells them, who are sitting right now safely on the shore, go out into the surf. Go out into the waters. I have just arisen from. Go out into the dangerous and hostile world. He gives them a commission. And this commission, it's not easy. It's going to encounter a world that is hostile, that is not believing. And this mission also, it isn't optional. When the risen Lord says, you go, I am sending you, it's not a suggestion. <laughs> you must go. But while this mission is not easy and it's not optional, it is beautiful. So the question for us is, how is it beautiful that Christ would send them out into this fearful and hostile world that he has just overcome and arisen from? It's beautiful because of what he says in verse 21. Look with me. It says, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so this begs the question for us to understand how this mission is beautiful. Just how, then, was Jesus sent by the Father? For what purpose and to what end did he come into the world? And in John's gospel, kind of summarizing for us, Jesus says time and time again, if you read the entirety of the gospel, that he has been sent into the world by the Father. That he has been sent to do God's will, to speak God's words, to do God's very works, and most importantly, to announce God's great salvation that is coming in and through him. And we could dive deep into passage after passage in which John explains why Jesus was sent or for what reason he came into the world. But for the sake of time, let me point to two passages that nicely sum up um, to what end and in what way Jesus was sent by the Father. The first of these is very familiar to us. It's John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Allow me to read it. It says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we see here very clearly, very plainly, Jesus was sent into the world to save the world, to give life to those who would perish apart from him, and suffer eternal separation from God. And to this point, the letter of John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 agrees. Listen to what 1 John 4, 9 has to say, adding to this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was revealed, it was seen by us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In love, the Father sent the Son to give us life. This is a summary, a boiling down of why Jesus was sent into the world, for what purpose and to what end he was sent, to give us life because he loved us. But the question then evolves and develops, but how would the Son give us life? Continuing in 1 John, listen to verse 10, immediately following verse 9. John continues to write, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus would give his own life, or excuse me, he would give us life by giving his own life as a propitiation. That means uh, a wrath averting and atoning sacrifice for our sins upon the cross. That's what propitiation means. A sacrifice that would turn away God's wrath toward our sin from us satisfying the payment of our death penalty that we would receive from breaking God's law that was over our heads that we were sitting under, bearing the curse for our sin, enabling God to forgive us without merely looking the other way on our sins, but by dealing with them in Christ through the cross. In other words, he was sent to give us life by giving his own life for us so that all who trust in his sacrifice for their sins would be saved and enter into life with God. Church, Jesus was sent into the world um, for the purpose uh, of saving the world, saving God's own out of the world through his sacrificial work. He gave his life to give life to all who would trust in his sacrifice for their sins. And so saving the world we see here was the end to which Jesus was sent. And now just the same, Jesus says, connecting back to us, I'm sending you into the world. This is the same reason we go into the world, that the world might be saved. So how will God accomplish this through us? How will he accomplish the saving of the world through us? Well, we see that we are sent into the world not to go and be an atoning sacrifice, not to go and add to the redemptive work of Christ, but we are sent to save the world by declaring the beautiful work of Christ's saving work. From the earliest days, Um, of the earliest church in which the disciples were sent out on that day of Pentecost, which would follow this scene by just 50 days, to every local church that has ever been established, Jesus' people have been sent into place after place, nation after nation, culture after culture, neighborhood after neighborhood, so that the world would be saved through the word of the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ to quote author Dustin Benge, is a willing liberator and savior of sinners. That, continuing to quote Benge, sinners can be rescued from God's wrath against sin through the sacrificial substitutionary death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. This is the gospel. That, me breaking in here, those who had not loved God which was all of us before his love was set upon us. But those who had not loved God, but had loved self, who had loved idols, who have loved darkness rather than the light and would have perished under judgment, that all these might be able to enter into the joy of life with the good God that they had rejected. That enemies of God 
who hated that God challenged their own self-acclaimed, self-proclaimed rule over their lives and self-proclaimed seat as the center of their own universe and rebelled against him, that those who would have rebelled against that one true king would experience peace with him, no longer being at war or at enmity with him. That those who were desperately seeking to belong somewhere, to earn their place in some form of family or society or membership anywhere that would give them value, that would give them identity, that would give them esteem and dignity, would be freely accepted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. All of this, this gospel, our author Dustin Bench concludes, he says, this isn't only good news, it's beautifully good news. The most beautiful news of all, that there is a way for us, sinners, those who have broken God's law, who have rebelled against his commands, who have preferred anything else to him, would come to know life and peace with God. The most beautiful, the most wonderful and worthy one of all that we've fallen short of, that we've scorned, that we have set aside in pursuing life according to our own way. That God can give us life and joy and peace that our guilt and shame can be taken away, that we have a hope, even as we sang this morning, that goes beyond the very grave. That there's something and someone that's more worth living for than ourselves. And I could go on and on, but the point is that through the reception of these beautiful words of the gospel, we come into life with the beautiful God of the gospel. And the church has been sent to declare these words and to announce these words to the world. He sent the church. We've been commissioned, not suggested, to go into our families, our friendships, and our neighborhood to announce and to declare these words. And so as we consider this commission that we received to make known this beautiful message of the gospel, let me give you a few points to guide us as we do so. And the first, I've already said it, but I'll say it again, is that this commission is a command not a suggestion. <laughs> and church, I, I do believe that God's grace is at work in us, and we get this. We know <laughs> this is not a suggestion to us. In fact, more than that, our, our church is not like Jonah, <laughs> reluctant to go to the people who need to hear the gospel. We are here in Santa Ana, and we say frequently and emphatically that we long for our neighbors to come in and be saved. We long for the gospel to go forth. We long for the joy of Jesus to be spread in our neighborhood. But here's where this text would challenge us. We say this, we confess this, we affirm this. But one area we might be able to grow in as a church would be to, to move the needle a little bit in our own life, and our own obedience to this command, to saying something like, well, wouldn't it be great if our neighbors would be saved? I really hope it happens. To, hmm, maybe they'll be saved as I go. Maybe they'll be saved as I press into the mission that I've received. We're all on board with the mission. We talk often about the mission. But do we just sit back and hope that somehow, in some way, the joy of Jesus will just be spread in Santa Ana <laughs> if we just hope for it enough? Or do we go into our city just as Jesus went into the world to actually engage our neighbors with the gospel? Are we actually doing this? More than just hoping for it, are we obeying Christ and trusting that as we go, he'll work through the word of the gospel. And so following that, two questions I'd have us consider before we move on to our second point. The first would be to ask yourself, 
What's your posture toward the world? We saw the disciples in the beginning of this scene, they were fearful of the world. They primarily thought of and considered the world outside of them, the world that was unbelieving, to be a place that was hostile, fearful, something that they wanted to avoid, something that they were rejecting. So as you think about the world, as you think about those who don't believe the gospel, those who are out in the culture who live very differently than we do, than you do, do you see the, the world as a place of fear? Do you see the people in the world as people that you ought to avoid? And the challenge of this text would be for us not to fear the world, but to be so in awe of Jesus, so enjoying his church, so loving him, that we would be prompted to engage the world with the unearned yet initiating love of God that we ourselves have received, that they would, engage, that they would receive the gospel. God has moved toward us when we didn't love him. God moved toward us when we were hostile to him, and he brought us in. Would we respond to that love by moving toward our neighbors, who are yet now hostile, who don't want what we have to offer in the gospel, that they might be saved? Would we be so in love with Christ, so moved by the love of Christ, that we would go into a place of lovelessness, that the gospel would go forth? The world hates the truth, but so did we. We hated the truth. <laughs> God moved toward us, and he changed us. We have the confidence in that he can do the same in our neighbors as well. So would we move toward them in love and not hunker down in fear? Second question for us to ask ourselves. Most basically then, can you articulate this gospel? The beautiful news that we've just heard about, could you pass this on to others? If you had 30 seconds, you had a minute, you had an interaction with an Uber driver or somebody at the coffee shop, would you be able to, not perfectly, not as a scholar or some sort of professional theologian, but could you advance to them the way in which they might be saved? Could you tell them about a good God who has created them, whom they've turned away from in sin, who has made a way for them to restore fellowship with this God? through Christ and his sacrifice upon the cross that is meant to be received by believing and trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins, which leads us toward an eternal and unfading hope as Christ returns. Could we take somebody through that gospel, that big story of creation, um, of fall and redemption? Could we bring someone into this story about Jesus? And though we want to certainly adorn the message of life, <laughs> right, with a beautiful manner of living, um, words are necessary <laughs> to communicate this good news. We shouldn't neglect a life adorned with gospel beauty as we go live among our neighbors, but gospel words are necessary for us to be faithful to our mission. And so a question for us is, could we articulate this gospel? Challenge yourself. Go home today, go into your small groups, and think, if I had a minute with somebody, what would I tell them about Jesus? What would I tell them about who he is and what he's done and how they might receive this? to enter into his beauty, and to be saved. Can we articulate this gospel? Because this gospel is what Paul says is the power of God to save. This is the gospel. These are the words that he has promised to work through by the power of his spirit to bring those who are outside, inside. Those who don't love God into the beauty of God. He's promised to work through these words by his spirit. And speaking of this spirit, this brings us to our Second point, Jesus has given us a beautiful commission to share the beautiful words of the gospel, but this commission is not one he sent us out on 
uh, alone, left to our own devices or our own resources to accomplish. No, Jesus sends the church to share the beautiful words of the gospel, and he sends her with the beautifier of the church himself. That is the Holy Spirit. This brings us to point number two, that as we're sent, we are sent with a beautiful co-laborer. That is, we are sent out with the Holy Spirit himself. Verse 22, look with me. It says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So as they go, as they are called to go into the world, to declare the gospel, they are going with the Spirit promised to them. We, all disciples then, every church is going out into this mission, not left to themselves, not left to our own power, our own abilities, our own uh, you know, persuasion abilities, but we are going with the Spirit. The Spirit, who is our beautiful co-laborer, who is partnering with us, fueling and empowering and guiding our mission. And so, the church is sent out with, as Dustin Ben says in his book, The Loveliest Place, the church is sent out with the beautifier of the church himself, the Holy Spirit, the one the Bible describes as our helper, right? As our intercessor, as our advocate, our comforter, our counselor, and sustainer, the one who works in the church to do all these wonderful things, the one who works in the church to make her beautiful internally by bearing the fruit of the Spirit within her members by giving the gifts of the Spirit to build up the body of Christ, by shaping her members, by shaping all of us together, more and more into the likeness of Christ, the Holy Spirit working in us, causing the word of Christ to dwell richly in us, causing Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. This is the Spirit's work in us internally, and he makes the church beautiful uh, and brings the beauty of Christ to bear upon us within, but he also works as the beauty of Christ shines forth from us. And this is what we see in our text here, that he works both in us and out from us to make the beauty of Christ known among the world. He gave us Jesus, the beauty, or excuse me, the spirit of Christ to shine forth the beauty of Christ. And so in verse 22, we see here that he's promising um, his disciples then, and by extension, uh, his people in all places and in all times, that as we go, we go with the spirit. As we go, we go with the presence and power of Christ himself with us through the Spirit so that we would have him to rely on as we press on in the task of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And so quickly jumping back into this text, this is one that is a little bit debated as far as what he means here by receive the Holy Spirit. And we're not going to get too bogged down into that um, because I think it can be pretty quickly explained. But there are a couple different theories as to what's happening here. Is this John's own take on Pentecost that would happen 50 days later? Is he kind of just mashing these things together, uh, you know, to get the point across, but not necessarily tell us the historical facts as they occurred? Is this the disciples receiving the Spirit in some way that's not how it was publicly received at Pentecost when the Spirit fell on uh, all the disciples who were gathered, not just the 11, and they spoke in tongues and they preached the gospel? Are the disciples here actually themselves receiving the Spirit in such a way that they're being changed, they're being converted, they're being saved actually for the first time? Is that what's happening here? Have they not till this point been converted to Christ? Have they not been born again? And now this is what's happening? And I would say, probably not to any of those things. <laughs> Though there's good merit to talk about those things, certainly with him breathing on them, just as God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2-7, we see here Jesus is breathing on them. Uh, 
saying probably that what I'm doing now through my resurrection, this is the start of the new creation, and I am sending you out as the people I've created, this new creation people, into the world to take the message that I, that I have, the words of life that would make men new, that would give them eternal life. I'm inaugurating something here. But I think, more than anything, what Jesus is doing here in breathing on them and giving them the Spirit is an anticipation. It's a foreshadowing of the promise of the Spirit that would come in full on the day of Pentecost. And I say this because in John's Gospel, Jesus himself says, you won't receive the Spirit until I what? Until I go to the Father. I must be ascended and exalted before I'll send the Spirit to you. And so I think that based on John's own Gospel, Christ is not giving them the fullness of the Spirit that they would receive at Pentecost, nor is John trying to mash together two historical events and say, hey, don't really worry about the chronology. Just get the point here. What Jesus is doing is promising them that as their mission kicks off, because they won't go out into the nations until the day of Pentecost arrives, as we know from the book of Acts, but he's saying, as you go then, the Spirit will go with you. And as we go now, the Spirit goes with us. And this is certainly helpful. This is certainly necessary. This is certainly important that we are aware that as we go out into mission, we go with the Spirit. That the Spirit will come and has come to be with us and in us and working through us that the world would be welcomed into the beauty of Christ as we go and share the gospel. That according to the promise of Jesus in the gospels that we see um, in the Bible, that he is saying the Spirit will come to you in order to do um, things that would help spur on the mission of the church. And I want to point out three of those things that the Spirit will do in them and in us as we press into our mission. The first of these is to enlighten our own minds to the truth of the gospel. The second would be to empower our gospel witness. And the third would be to effectively work through the words of our gospel witness upon the hearts of those who hear. And so three things that is important to grab onto with the Spirit coming. This is why it's good that he's with us, that we're not on mission alone because we cannot do these things ourselves. But first is that Jesus says, receive the Spirit, and he's already promised in John's gospel that as the Spirit comes, he will open the minds of the disciples to know and to understand his truth, to know and understand his gospel, to apply it to their own lives, to love it, to savor it, to appreciate it, and to be equipped to share the beauty of Christ with others. John 14, 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I have said to you. Carrying on in John chapter 16, Jesus says, beginning in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus promises the spirit will come to the church to lead us into the truth of the gospel. He will open up our minds and our hearts to understand. We can be confident that we know the word of life truly, though maybe not exhaustively in every way, but truly, enough so as to offer it to someone else because the Spirit will work in us. He will help us to know it, to understand it, and to love it. Second thing, the Spirit will come to empower our gospel witness. Acts 1.8 says this, Jesus speaking to the disciples before his ascension, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So the Spirit will come. And as we see in the book of Acts, he'll come and he'll work in God's people to provide boldness, courage, and power to share the gospel message. 
And we see this happen from time and time again in the book of Acts. The Spirit will come and fuel the gospel proclamation of the church. And even to this point, he's promised, Jesus says in other places in the gospels, to provide the words we'd even need to speak in certain moments and in certain situations that the Spirit would be with us to bring these things to mind, to give us the words to speak and a power that goes beyond our own power with a persuasive ability that goes beyond our own persuasive ability. He will empower our witness to a hostile world. Third thing, the Spirit will effectively work through our gospel witness to actually save those who hear our words. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and when he, the Spirit, comes, he, he'll do these things, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus promises that the Spirit will come and he'll do the work of convicting the world. Convicting the individual non-believer in their heart of their sin and rejecting God and his way of salvation. He will show them the truth of Jesus the righteous one. He will show them his conquering of the evil one. He'll show them these things. He will convince them and bear witness in their spirit through the power of his spirit. And John 3 adds to this. Jesus, when speaking to Nicodemus, right, at night he comes to him and he says what? You must be born again if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. And he says, well, how can I do that? That seems impossible to me. And Jesus says, yes, it is impossible to you, but not for the spirit. But the spirit will come and he will cause you to be born again. He says in chapter 3, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Jesus says to Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it, it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Jesus here is saying, <laughs> it's impossible for you in your own power as you are to make yourself reborn, <laughs> to regenerate and to renew and to remake and recreate yourself. But as the spirit comes and works through the word, of the gospel. He brings to life those who are spiritually dead. He opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind. He does the work in someone that we could never do ourselves. He'll do these things. And so this leads us to the obvious application <laughs> that you can't fulfill this commission in your own power. We need the Spirit to do the work that only He can do so that our gospel witness would be fruitful so that sinners, so that our neighbors would be saved. And for the individual believer who is hearing this commission, who is grappling with this charge we have from Christ today, the wonderful truth of our beautiful co-laborer should be a comfort to us as we experience feelings of inadequacy, right? When it comes to thinking about sharing the gospel with others. Many of us would agree, right, that the gospel uh, that the church is God's instrument of saving the world, that the gospel is indeed God's power to save, but then we would refrain from sharing this message with others because we feel inadequate in doing so. We feel uh, like we might get something wrong, that we might mess something up, that we will lack answers to questions that are being asked. But as we're dealing with those feelings of inadequacy, we need to remember that we have the Spirit the same spirit who worked in us to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel is always leading us into greater and greater knowledge of that truth. This same spirit is empowering our witness as we 
share the words of the gospel. And this same spirit is the one who can do a work in the hearts of those who hear us. It's not about our power. It's not about our ability to persuade. It's not about our good arguments, dismantling their worldview and doing excellent apologetics. It's about the word of the gospel that the spirit of God has promised to work through. And so for us, it's our commission just to faithfully announce this gospel as best, as simply, and as clearly as we can and trust the spirit to work through that gospel. Taking the pressure off ourselves and putting all our faith and confidence in him to do what only he can do. He said he'd do it, and he has done it in us, and he will continue to do so as the simple gospel, the better news, not the better argument, not the better clash of worldviews online and comments firing on, you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever. He will do it through the gospel. And so we just need to love the gospel and move toward others with the love of Christ in sharing that gospel. And so finally, having received now a beautiful commission from Jesus, as well as a beautiful co-laborer out into the mission field, the Spirit, Jesus sends us forth with the assurance that our gospel welcome to the world will really work. <laughs> and that might seem like a, a duh thing to us, because 2,000 years later we see it has worked, but consider again the disciples, 11 guys scared in a room going, Jesus, you're telling us we're going to go into the world? You're telling us, some of us unlearned and uneducated, this ragtag group of redeemed sinners, we are going to be the ones who are going to offer the welcome of the kingdom of God? And people will listen? And it'll work? Not the Jewish leaders? Not the professionals? Not those who have just crucified you? You're not going to use them? You're not going to use the establishment of our Jewish religiosity? You're going to use us? This grassroots movement of ragtag disciples? And he said, yeah, I'm going to use them. I'm going to use you. I'm going to use our church here today. And you all will go. And I want you to be confident that as you go and extend this welcome, it will be received. And that as that welcome is received, you can truly be confident that those who come into your churches, those who come into your body, they have truly come into life with God, into the body of Christ. And so look with me at verse 23. Jesus says to them, giving them a confidence as they go forward. If you receive, or excuse me, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this brings us to our third point, that we go out with a beautiful confidence. We go out as a church with the confidence that as we go and the gospel's heard and received, we can truly, confidently, assuredly extend the very welcome of God to those who would hear our gospel and come into our congregation. The church then becomes a beautiful place in which sinners would receive the blessed assurance that they really and truly belong to God. So Jesus tells the disciples, if you forgive, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive, they're not forgiven. <laughs> and very quickly, uh, we want to note that this passage here, which can be something that we might stumble over, it sounds a little bit, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa I don't know if I want to try to claim that kind of authority for myself. <laughs> this authority here is not an authority that the church has in and of herself, that we have in and of ourselves to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. It's not some sort of establishment here in verse 23 of a special class of priests like we see in the Roman Catholic Church or in the Eastern Orthodox Church who have the authority to declare people forgiven on the basis of giving them certain sacraments and doing certain rituals. No. Uh, though in one sense the apostles, yes, they are categorically different from you and I. We haven't seen the risen Lord the way they have. They did write the New Testament. <laughs> they have a certain authority that we don't. 
This passage here is speaking to them as representative of the whole Christian community. Because the whole of the church has been sent into the world. The whole of the church has received the Spirit. The whole of the church is the welcoming committee of God. And so, this authority here, these, what we would call keys to the kingdom that we see referenced in other passages like in Matthew 16, 19, and Matthew 18, 18, you can go look those up later. But these keys of the kingdom are given for all of us to hold and to wield and to unlock the door into life with God. And so what is this authority that we have here? Primarily, as Jesus tells the church that if you forgive anyone, they are forgiven. What he's meaning to these 11 disciples, cowering, fearful, and the very nucleus of his church that is going to go and expand and cover the ends of the earth, he says that if you forgive any, that is, if you preach the gospel, someone receives it, they repent, and they believe, you can tell them assuredly, you are forgiven of your sins. God has accepted you. He has received you, not on the basis of your works, but on the basis of faith in Christ and Christ alone. Come into life with him and live out that life in his body, the church. He says, if you forgive any on earth, you can be confident that they've been forgiven by God in heaven. So that all who come to you and all that you receive, you can have the assurance that they've been received by God. And so you can move out toward the world and posture yourself towards the world and say, truly, we have the words of life. <laughs> not, uh, not bashfully, not maybe <laughs> we have the words of life that, well, this might get you into the kingdom, but assuredly, we can tell the world. We can look to our neighbors and say, all who remain in sin will face God's judgment, but all who receive the Son will enter into life. We can assure you of that. Come into life with him. Repent and believe the gospel. Live out the life that you have in Christ in the church and be assured as we gather together in worship. Be assured as you are baptized into the body of Christ. Be assured as we take the Lord's table that you truly belong to God. Church, in this way, what Jesus is telling his disciples here is that I've given you the keys to unlock the door to the kingdom of God, to the world outside. You can go and extend the welcome, and then when they receive it, you can take them right into the house. You can bring them right into the life of the family of God. Be confident in that. In this way, the local church is the rescue center of God upon the earth. It's the, the adoption agency of God upon the earth, going out and doing this work um, by the power of his spirit. The church is the visible expression, or excuse me, the visible expression of the invisible God's welcome through the person and work of Jesus Christ for the world to see and for the world to receive. And that should cause us to say, what a beautiful place. How can we not invite our friends, invite our families, invite our neighbors to come into the church, not to behold our beauty, but to behold the beauty of Christ who's gathered us, who's bought us, who's purchased us, and who is making us more and more beautiful day by day, moment by moment, as we live our lives together. How can we not but welcome others into what we have in Christ? And so two thoughts for us to grab onto as we leave and as we wrap up. Two final points of application as we who have been gathered by God prepare to scatter out into the world. The first would be to ask yourself, if this is the case and we've been authorized and commanded and commissioned to go out into the world and given full confidence that we can welcome the world, are you going into the world? <laughs> We're authorized to go, but are you going? Are you engaging unbelievers in your life? Or are you living in such a way that you're so insulated in Christian community, which is good, which is fruitful, which is helpful, but in such a way that you're never actually engaging meaningfully with anyone who doesn't believe the gospel, 
Are you going into the world and engaging the world? And even as you do, are you seizing the opportunities you have in those times when you're around unbelievers to actually share the gospel with them? Yes, to show them your life in Christ, to be exemplary, but also to get to the place and get to the point where you communicate the words of life here and there in bits and it starts to them. Are you engaging the world? And I would say a few practical bits of encouragement to help you do that. If you are, if you aren't, if you're not sure, pray for opportunities. Start not by saying, I got to go do, but say, Lord, you've given me this commission. I pray you would give me opportunities. Whenever in my life I've prayed for opportunities to talk to people about spiritual things, God is always faithful to answer that prayer. Pray for opportunities. And then allow the commission that we have to transform the way you think about, you know, seeing and seizing opportunities. Every Uber drive, every coffee shop, sit down next to the other guy there and wherever else you might be can be an opportunity to go move towards someone, show them the care um, of Christ, and then move toward them with the love of Christ to share the gospel. Asking about them, showing interest in them, and then figuring out ways in which they're experiencing brokenness in their life, ways in which they're telling you they're longing for certain things in life, ways in which you can say, hey, I, I know what might be a great solution, not to solve other problems, but you understand what I'm saying. If they're longing for community, if they're feeling lonely, we can tell them about how God has put us in a family forever. If they've experienced fatherlessness, we can tell them about how God is a father who never fails. If they're feeling unworthy and guilty and ashamed, we can tell them about Christ, who is our righteousness. We can connect the gospel to the brokenness that they would share with us. We can invite them to church. We can offer them to come into life with Christ and to be received into our community. The church should be an inviting place. In fact, we should be the most inviting place, the welcoming committee of God upon the earth somewhere where we really want other people to come. And so the second practical thing I would say to us to grab onto and very simply start with, do you have one person you could invite to join us over the course of the next month? One person you could invite to church to join us, and that in itself is not sharing the gospel, that's not necessarily reaching the finish line here, but it's a way to bring someone else out into the welcome of God, that they would hear the gospel through you, but also through our gathered worship together, that they would see what life and Christ looks like that they would see the beauty of the church on display before their eyes and go, wow, there is no place like this place. You have one person you could invite to join us over the course of the next month, especially as we start in the gospel of Mark. And week after week, we see Jesus on display in the story of the gospel. And they can behold him and they can believe in him and come to belong to him. And so church, as we close, would we, the church, the bride of Christ, together with the spirit of Christ, Invite our neighbors to enter life with God through Christ. Would we go out today and days forward and call them to salvation with the beautiful words of the gospel, empowered by the beautifier who is the Spirit, in order that they would come to believe in Christ and belong to his people, the most beautiful people in the most beautiful place, the church. Let's pray.